Last week, we started a series called Wonder, and the idea is really that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. We sing about that. Uh, it's on our banners, our Christmas cards, our kind of notes that we send each other, and yet, um, for many of us, it's not the most wonderful time of the year. It's the time when we're most wondering, right? We're wondering about the finances of Christmas. We're wondering about the logistics of travel. Um, if you're married and you have uh, two separate families, or maybe some of you can connect and you have three or four different subsets of families, just the, the sheer logistics of how do you make all of them happy and maintain the own kind of personal happiness in your own home. And there's so many things to wonder about. There's so many things that can flow through our mind that we can miss the most wonderful part of this time of year. And this series is really meant to kind of help us reclaim wonder. Because scientists and research has demonstrated that wonder leads to generosity. Wonder leads to more compassionate living. Wonder leads to a better quality of life. That wonder when experienced regularly, makes us better people, which is a very strange thing. I kind of dived into that last week, that why wonder would be something important to us as a species, and yet we pay money to experience it. We build week-long vacations. We take time off of work to travel to places, right, that are large holes in the ground just to stare at them, or tall mountains, because we're drawn to wonder. And last week I said, you know, if we're going to start to journey uh, this reclaiming, that we have to start with resetting our mindset. And that was last week's message. But this week I want to kind of push in a little deeper. And actually, let's say, how do we actually start to reclaim? If we've reset, how do we actually reclaim it? And the way we reclaim it is to go back to the Christmas story and to strip away everything and just get to the headline. Because it's possible to, to bury the lead, to use a journalism term, where we, in the midst of all the details, we miss the main central point. And the main central point of the Christmas story is not chubby angels sitting on top of a manger scene. It's not shepherds nearby in a field. It's, it's, it's not even cute little animals watching baby Jesus or the drummer boy, which is actually not in the story. Like, it's not any of those things. That the headline of Christmas is that God is here. And that's a pretty ridiculous statement Christmas makes, that God is here. And that it's either the greatest lie ever told to cover up a teenage pregnancy, or it's the, or it's the greatest event to have ever unfolded what I love about the central heartbeat and headline of Christmas is it's one or the other, right? It's a, the, the worst cover-up, or it's the most incredible moment in human history. And that if we are going to reclaim wonder in this most wonderful time of the year, then we have to go back to that central theme of Christmas that God is here. And today, I want to look at one of the most familiar passages of the Christmas story, even if you're like some of us or maybe like me and you didn't grow up in a religious context, um, no doubt you've heard this passage. If you've ever seen Charlie Brown's Christmas, if you've ever um, gone to a niece or a nephew's play and just kind of sat in there, there's, this is normally the passage that gets read that captures the essence of the Christmas story. And while there's about 12 verses I'm going to read, what we're going to choose to do over the course of the next 25 minutes is actually unpack just four of those verses that get to the, to the details and the headline. But I want to set the stage for you. Luke 
is the writer of this passage. Luke is an actual man who lived about 2,000 years ago. He was a doctor who became a Christian um, and in the course of becoming a Christian goes back and starts to kind of investigate the faith a little bit more. And he's one of the, the first historians of the Christian faith. And so most of the stories of Luke come with this kind of in the moment, kind of first person kind of view. You kind of pick up on that as you read through Luke. Luke was really educated, was a very articulate individual, and he writes two different books in the New Testament, Luke and Acts. It's kind of like volume one and volume two. And in volume one, he writes a lot about the birth of Jesus. And historians believe, based on what you can see in the text, that Luke gets this source material from Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's why it's so intimate. That's why it's so present. That's why there's details like Mary pondered in her heart that he writes. Because Luke interviewed Mary and said, tell me about that day. And out of those interviews come the book of Luke. And chapter 2 specifically is where we're going to be today. And Luke chapter 2, verse 1, um, Luke begins it this way. In those days, Caesar Augustus, right? This is a history lesson, right? Issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David. Because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. But today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And that's a very familiar text for us who've grown up in church, and for even some of us who didn't. But this is the famous account that Luke writes out of his interviews with Mary. And he sets the stage by saying this, this happened out of this historical event of Caesar Augustus issuing a decree. And while I would love to like dive into Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus, in his backstories, simply this is what you need to know, is he establishes um, the Roman Empire. Julius Caesar, his great uncle, comes along before him, before him and starts to do some things. But it's Caesar Augustus, who is the heir to the throne, named in Julius Caesar's will, that really consolidates this empire. This empire goes from what's currently Spain, all of Europe except for the northern regions, into the Middle East, now currently Israel, Syria, those areas, and down into all of northern Africa. It's a huge Huge swatch of land that Caesar Augustus is ruling over. His empire that he establishes lasts for 1,500 years, which is incredible when you think about it, right? That this man establishes an empire that lasts 1,500 years. He was incredibly uh, devious, cultivated, clever. He was, he was a beautiful, uh, like, 
manipulator of individuals and nations and people groups. He knew how to strategically deploy armies and overthrow potential threats. And this man set about ordering his kingdom. In the midst of ordering his kingdom, he needed to establish taxes. And so he issues a census over his entire kingdom that forces people to relocate back to where they grew up in order that a proper account can be done to figure out the taxes that each region owes to him as the supreme ruler of the world. And this is the backdrop of the Christmas story. Mary and Joseph, because of Caesar's decree, load up and begin to travel. She's nine months pregnant, on the verge of giving birth, and they trek 90-plus miles, three-day journey, to this little town of Bethlehem that would essentially be equivalent to uh, almost a, a Brockton Falls River distance from Boston. It's, a, it's kind of a, a suburb of Jerusalem in its day, and it's a really small, quaint village that's not ready, that doesn't have the infrastructure to handle the surge of returning citizens and family members. And so into that crowd returning back to Bethlehem, into the bustle of commerce, of hotels being sold out, of food vendors selling out because of the surge of people, come into that town Mary and Joseph. And when it's time for her to give birth, she, she begins to go around to the different ends, and there is no room in all the town. And what ends up happening is they find a stable and a manger scene and what's probably eventually uh, what would have been a feeding trough for the animals would have been the place that baby Jesus would have been placed inside of. And that's the Christmas story. That's the backdrop of the Christmas story. But what I want to draw attention to the few verses over just our next like 18 minutes together is this. Where you see um, in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. For today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And so what's interesting about that phrase in verse 11 is that's the same phrase that gets picked up and used of Caesar's future children. Because this phrase, this, this thing that the angel says to Mary is pointing to deity. It's pointing to the divine. To the point that when the Roman Senate later calls Caesar Augustus God and future Caesars are born, this is the same phrase. They steal this phrase and use it about the birth of each Caesar. Because they they, they knew the significance of the statement. This is a statement about divinity. That the headline of Christmas is that the I am, right, what the Jews called the I am, the God of the universe, was here. And I want to take you on a brief journey that kind of coincides with my journey, and I'm going to give you a, kind of a spoiler alert. It's, it's a bit of nerddom. It may hurt your brain. Um, you just roll with it. Um, you can do what people do around me sometimes. They just like get smile and nod at me. And, but trust me, just, just stick with me, and I think you're going to see like this is incredible. So I, I shared last week, part of my journey to faith really involved kind of diving into theoretical physics. I told you I was a nerd. 
Uh, for those who came by and actually saw the asteroid I had, you realize and confirm that suspicion, right? That in fact, is a nerd. Um, and so, but one of the things that I've always loved is outer space. I don't know about you if there's anyone else in here who's like a space junkie, but I remember, like, I remember vividly the first time I saw Saturn through a telescope. Anybody else have that moment? Yeah. Oh, okay. Like, oh, awesome. We should start a club because we're probably the only people in America who actually think about that. Right? So this is Saturn, and I'm probably going to ask you to dim the lights a lot for a portion of this, because this is Saturn in all of, I guess, her beauty? I don't know. Um, but it's incredible. And I remember looking in a telescope and saying, oh my goodness, that's real? That's Saturn. And just being blown away by the beauty and like the, I could see the rings, right? And I was like, this is unreal. And this is kind of, I, I love science. I love digging into the science of outer space. And as I'm unpacking it, um, Saturn is part of the eight current planets, right? Sorry, Pluto, you got kicked out. Messed us up that grew up with Pluto as a planet, right? But that, that's called the, our solar system, right? That's our neighborhood. That's where we dwell, right? Domicile, that's our place. And, but the, the solar system is part of a larger thing called the Milky Way, right? And the Milky Way is that beautiful thing if you're ever out in the middle of nowhere, and it's a perfect night. You can kind of see one of the, the arms of the Milky Way kind of cutting across the sky. And, but to give you some perspective, um, our solar system, compared to the Milky Way, if the Milky Way was the size of North America, right, the continent that we live on, then our solar system would be the size of a quarter, 25 cents. So drop 25-cent piece on the ground of North America, and that's the Milky Way. And we live inside of the quarter. We're a tiny little speck on a tiny little speck inside the quarter. And that starts to, like, stretch your mind a little bit, right? You're like, whoa, whoa. The, Mil the Milky Way just got really big for all of us, right? You're like, just all as a candy bar. It's, it's massive, right? This is huge. And so here's the solar system. Here's the Milky Way. And then when you start to zoom out and you realize, okay, the Milky Way is just one galaxy, because it's a galaxy. It's a collection of different systems and kind of planetary systems. And so you've got this thing called the Milky Way. Um, but then across the board is this huge thing called the universe. And the universe is massive. And when you talk about the universe, you talk about um, a, uni a unit of measurement called uh, light years, right? We talk about traveling from here to New York City, right, or up to Maine. We talk about miles. If we talk about driving west or south to Florida, we may talk about a day and a half journey, right? But when we start talking about traveling across the universe, we can't use miles anymore. We start to use things like light years, which means nothing to us. A light year is 5.88 trillion miles. Like, I don't use trillion in the course of my, like, daily vocabulary, right? Like, trillion's not a word I use a lot. So let me kind of give you a, a, a way that helps me kind of frame a trillion. If I were to tell you a million seconds, if we were to count out a million seconds, a million seconds would be 11 days ago. So one million seconds is 11 days ago. One billion seconds. Just guess in your head. You don't have to say it out loud. Just guess in your head. Is 31 years ago. Okay? Still tracking? One trillion seconds? I'm so excited. I just went up. Like, my pitch just went up. That's how excited I get about this stuff. Sorry about that. 
One trillion seconds is 31,688 years and one month ago. That's a trillion. And when we talk about a light year, we're talking about 5.88 trillion miles. And the universe in its vastness, right? I'm going to give you two more pictures to kind of frame this. The universe in its vastness is about 14 and a half billion light years across. That's incredibly, that's like like brain numbingly impossible to fathom. But Hubble, which is a space telescope, um, about two years ago was engaged in taking kind of deep pictures. And so what you see behind you is a, a moon is a scale. If you were to see the scale, this is like the moon's the scale. So if any night you're ever out and you see the moon, this is the moon to scale. The extreme deep field, um, which was the image taken by Hubble, is that little square right in the middle. Like that's representative of what that tiny little selfie that Hubble took of the universe. And when they downloaded and got the the digital pictures back from that, what they found was this image, um, the the next image. And what was incredible is when you look at this, this may look like a bunch of specks, and it may not look very profound, but every single one of those specks are a galaxy, like the Milky Way. That's, That's not stars. Those are galaxies. You start to get a frame for how big this universe is. You kind of, maybe your brain hurts a little bit, but you kind of start to see how vast this thing is that we call the universe, right? It's massive. And when the Hubble Extreme Deep Field returned the shot, it was like, man, this thing is so, so big. And while I'm journeying through this, asking and, and bouncing up against the idea of like human knowledge, um, one of the things that you come across eventually is the Big Bang. And one of the things that in the midst of reading and processing, there was a question that would want to bubble up inside of me that I thought was a very logical question, but people seemed to be reluctant to ask it, unless it was in the realm of these books I was reading. These scientists seemed to be comfortable with the question because they're like, you have to. Right? In any other circumstance or context, when a Big Bang happens, we always say what or who caused it, right? I mean, if there's a bang, people are like, what happened and who was behind it? And, and so one of the, another telescope that's currently orbiting our planet that was put out by the European Space Agency is the Planck Telescope, right? And the Planck Telescope is a continuation of, of ongoing research where they're trying to capture the um, echo of the Big Bang. And the British um, Telegraph, it's a British newspaper, uh, a couple years ago published this brilliant article where they released the ESA's um, first kind of full image of the Big Bang echo um, shot. And that's this right here. This is stunning, right? That little center bar in the middle there, that's the Milky Way. That's the arms of our Milky Way because we're taking a picture from inside out. This is a flat image. You kind of drop us in the middle of it and make it three-dimensional where it's wrapped all around us. And you kind of get a, a spectrum of what this is. But the telegraph identified this for what it really was, that what you see is the echo of the first light in the universe. And 
I don't know about you, but my heart and my mind, when I read that, and even processing through this in my journey of faith, I went back to when it said, God said, let there be light. And that spark that created this universe. Like what you see when you look at the plank image is the echo of the voice of God speaking light and creating a universe that is still reverberating to the farthest edges of the universe. Imagine the power of a voice that speaks that can still be captured at the edges of the universe. Like, and I think what happens when you study this stuff too much is that you fall into two camps, typically, that you find. Um, you fall into one camp, like Carl Sagan or Neil Tyson, where um, the, you arrive at this sense of hopelessness. You're like, the universe is vast, it's cold, it's empty, it's alone. This is the only thing we've got going. We better not mess this up. We can't expect hope from outside because in this universe, we're all by ourselves. And there's a sense of despair that comes out of it. Even Carl Sagan in his book, Pale Blue Dot, right, this beautiful just packing of Earth's uniqueness in this cosmological thing called the universe, he comes to this similar place of like, we can't expect hope from outside. We better not mess this up. And then you got the camp over here, which is the feel-good, emotional, sentimental, that we're so special, we're all like snowflakes and we're unique, where like the universe is about us. And everything's about us. Because look, we're the only life forms in the entire universe. We're special. We should have a song. Right? And I think that both of those camps miss the point of the universe. I don't know if any of you are Adele fans, right? Um, I am. I, I, I'm, I'm comfortable admitting that, right? Um, I, I, I straight up, I believe in angels because an angel, a baby one of them, crawled into that girl's throat and lives there. And every time she opens her mouth, it sings. I believe in angels because I have Adele's records and I hear it, right? But like this girl, when she opens her mouth, it's like, wow. But it's every song that happens. And I don't fall into the camp of either side with Adele. What I understand when I listen to masterpiece after masterpiece after ma masterpiece of that baby angel crying out through that woman, right? What I'm reminded of if, is that in the midst of all the masterpieces, there's a master. In the midst of all the incredible priceless works of art, there is an artist. That the universe is not a statement of just this dark despair, nor is it a statement that it's about us. It's the universe is a reflection of a God and who his magnificence and his creativity and in the wonder of who he is, he can't help but create beauty and awe-inspiring images that some of us will never even see. There is incredible, breathtaking beauty in those galaxies that we will never lie, lay eyes on. Because they weren't made for us. They reflect him. It's, Adele can sing to her baby boy, right? She can sing any song. And it's going to be beautiful. Because she's a master. She's incredibly gifted. And whatever she touches vocally is impressive. And here's the creator of the universe. Um, like when Saturn, when, when it lightened, like there's lightning on Saturn. 
We just discovered, this past year there was a lightning storm on Saturn that lasted for 200 days. And, and scientists think because of the blue sensor on one of the satellites that got pinged, that the lightning is blue. Like for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, human beings did not know that. Because that wasn't put there for us. It was put there as a reflection of him. Because when he's crafting these things, he's like, blue lightning. That'll be good. Right? That's who he is. And yet, in the midst of all of that, in the Christmas story, you get perhaps one of the most profound sentences ever written after verse 11. That this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. That the I am is here. Not in the palace in Rome. Not, move, not moving or issuing decrees, mobilizing the entire world. But lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. So just within the last, I think, year and a half, there was another picture of taken of Saturn that is even more stunning. And this was, we, we currently, as, uh, an, as a nation, have a satellite orbiting Saturn. And this was one of the images that came back. And if you notice, so what's happening, the artistic thing here, is that the sun is shining, and because Saturn's a gas planet, some of it's coming through, but it creates this really cool uh, shadow effect. So the satellite's actually on the backside of Saturn. And they're, they're downloading this image, and what kind of stands out to the scientists is they start to notice something right above where I'm standing, right above the ring. There's just a little faint, tiny white speck. I don't know if you can see it, but it's just this faint, tiny white speck right above the top ring on my right. And the scientists, while they were doing the math and computing and putting all of it together, they realized that that was Earth photobombing Saturn. The Earth was like, hey! And that's what Earth photobombing Saturn looks like. A tiny, tiny little speck. And that this, the power of the Christmas story is that the I am, the one who created all of this that we've just walked through, stepped into that tiny little speck, not as a magnificent ruler in Rome, but as a tiny baby in Bethlehem. And that he was wrapped in cloth, and he was placed not in an inn, not in the Ritz-Carlton of Bethlehem, but in a feeding trough for an animal. That the wonder of Christmas is that he did that, and that we can look at this story and take a cue in what he thinks about you. That we are loved, that we are pursued, right? I mean, I love there's these songs where it's like, girl, I'll go anywhere for you, right? I'll climb a mountain, I'll swim an ocean, I'll walk through fire, I'll, I'll catch a grenade, right? You just pick some type of topic, and there's somebody saying, I will do something for you. And the Christmas story is God saying, the one who made the universe stepped into the universe for you. To pursue you. To say, I love you. Because it is good news for all people that he came to make a way. And what I love about this story is, and even 
Encounter Church is that we just have kind of a full spectrum of people from skeptic to like, uh, to sold out. And that even if you don't buy the story completely, then you can at least appreciate as we've unpacked the journey the profound brilliance of whoever wrote this because this is single-handedly one of the best leadership and love moves ever. It's something that great spouses do. It's something that great parents do. It's something that great leaders do because it's what a great God did. I have a soon-to-be four-year-old in a couple of days, right? And um, that little four-year-old just be honest with you, I'm very much a rational, logical individual. I don't, I don't just tear up. I don't cry um, a lot. I mean, I do cry tears. I'm not a robot. But um, I don't get emotion, like the intense variety of emotion, right? I'm not knocking those who have it. I just don't understand it. I'm just like, well, here's the facts. Let's do something about it, right? And some of you can kind of relate to that, and that causes you marital problems, right? I can give you some coaching on that one later. Um, but my little four-year-old is emotions wrapped in skin. I mean, we have extreme emotions. And there are times where I look at her, I don't even know what to do with it. Like before we came here this morning, a pony was missing. And we were crying. And I was like, the, the pony's still here? You just hadn't found it. Why are you crying? Stop crying, go look for it, right? Like, and, I'm like, doo, doo, doo. and I'm like, that's probably bad advice. Because not only do we take our cue from the Christmas story about what it says about you, we also take our cue on what to do in our relationships. My wife does this really, really well. Um, If you've ever seen that movie Inside Out, um, it's this really funny Pixar movie. There's this great scene where the daughter's having this issue and mom and dad are talking at the table and mom's trying to connect and daughter's being a little sassy and so she gives the eyeball to the dad who's thinking about hockey and he's going, oh, oh, I'm supposed to be saying something. She gives him the eye. And he's like, he asks the question, how was today's school? And he's like, that was the worst question ever, right? And, and she gets sassy again. And all of a sudden, it zooms into his head, and it's all the emotions, and they're up talking. And then the anger one comes in. He's like this square. And he's like, prepare for the foot, boys. And they, like, turn the keys on like they're getting ready to launch this nuclear weapon. And she gets sassier back, and he's like, you better watch it. And they're, like, both clicking in their head because it's about to happen. And then he's like, go to your room right now. And they're like, foot is down, foot is down. They're, like, high-fiving each other. They're like, this was a success. And it zooms to the mom, and she's like, that was an absolute failure, right? This, I feel like this is me so many times with my daughter because I want to engage her from where I am and who I am. And it, it rarely ever works. But I watch my wife get out of her chair, get down on her knee, and say, sweetie. And all of a sudden, they're kind of just communicating on the same wavelength. She's like, hey. And she leads our daughter to do or to not do what what. I had initially sat in my chair commanding that didn't happen. And so I think what we see in the Christmas story is a God who stepped into where we were to lead us and to love us. And that the beauty of the Christmas story is that this doesn't just work with our children. It works with our spouses when we're willing to communicate love in the way they receive it, not just the way we give it. Right? When we're willing to 
not give gifts, but spend time having conversation or quality time. Not because you're a quality time person, but because they receive love in quality time. Or if you're a boss or an employer, that you don't just treat your people that work for you like they're means to an end. But that you step into their world and you step into their life and you get to know them and you care about them. That we see a God who stepped into humanity. And even at a cultural level, Ferguson, last year, um, I recently had an opportunity to hear Ron Johnson, who was brought into Ferguson, Missouri, to help turn around the riots. And um, in the midst of his kind of communication seminar he was giving us, he said this one line that was so profound. He said, my strategy for turning around Ferguson was a realization I had that distance demonizes. That when I spent time asking questions, what I heard was us and them. So I went back to the them, and I said, we have to become part of the us. And one of his first acts was to march in a protest alongside of the protesters against the injustice that had been done there. And he was able to lead through that really tumultuous season and to, to help navigate what could have been disaster after disaster. But he started to turn it into a conversation that deepened the relationship and started to repair some of the broken trust between the police and the people of Ferguson. And this profound middle-aged man just said, it's because at the end of the day, distance demonizes. When you're not close to someone, you don't see their mistakes or their bad ideas. You just see bad people. But when you're willing to step in with them, you can start to understand them and lead them. And every time we say Merry Christmas, we get a cue from God of what he thinks about us, that he loved us enough to step into this, but we also get a cue in what to do, of looking at those relationships in our own lives and being willing to step into them. And that if you and I, were, just imagine if we started to live with the realization of the wonderful time of year, not because of what's happening in our life, because instead of what has happened, that the great I am said, here then in the process of reclaiming wonder in general, we can start to reclaim the wonder of relationships around us specifically.